It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins, and will heal their land. What will it take for us to pray? Today, Pastor Rick invites us on a three-part journey in what he calls 21 Days of Prayer, where he's going to talk about praying intensely for Rancho Baptist Church over this next month. Today is part one. He's in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 11 through 15, in a sermon he's entitled, The Pinnacle to the Pit Drop. Here's Rick. Consistently, surveys that are given to church attenders find that there are three biblical topics that tend to create a great deal of guilt. Anybody want to try to guess what those three topics are? Prayer, financial giving, and sharing your testimony with other people. So this morning I thought that I would teach on how you need to pray more about giving more of your money and sharing your faith with your friends more of the time. (laughs) No, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. But today is the start of our 21-day adventure in prayer as a church. And so I thought it would be great for us to use the next four Sundays uh, to focus on prayer. But I have no intention whatsoever to load on more guilt. Rather, I think the passages that we're going to look at over these four Sundays, and by the way, this will not be any kind of an exhaustive treatment on prayer but rather pinpoint a couple of key areas. And in key, in looking at those key areas, I think you'll find these Sundays actually answer a lot of your questions about prayer, as well as helping you to engage in prayer in some new ways. But we all have questions about prayer. I mean, for example, who hasn't wondered, why are we making such a big deal of these 21 days? What's this prayer focus intended to do? What's this prayer focus intended to accomplish? Or some of you might be thinking, I'm no one special. Um, In fact, if you knew the truth, I am a mess on the inside, so why would God care what I pray about? Or you may have some other questions about prayer. Let me just encourage you, let those questions bubble to the surface. And then let's allow God's word in the next few weeks to address our wondering. So to get started, I have a question this morning I'd like to put out on the table. And that is, how can we tell what is truly valuable to us? In other words, how can we clearly identify that which we highly treasure or that which we highly prize? Well, typically, there are three very clear behaviors that reveal what is truly valuable to us. For example, what's valuable to us? Well, it'll be seen in how much we're willing to spend on it. Some of you are willing to pay a premium price to get an iPhone when other cell phones that have the exact same features can cost a third less. And the very fact right now that you want to argue with me about that shows you how valuable it is to you. (laughs) 
There's a second way our behaviors show what's valuable to us, and that is not only what we're willing to spend on it, but what are we willing to sacrifice for it? So we get a new car, or maybe at least it's new to us, and we lovingly wash it twice a week. And we don't mind the extra long walk when we go to the mall because we're parking it way out there by itself because we don't want anybody else's door dinging the side of our new car. Or third behavior that reveals what's really valuable to us is what are we willing to say no to so that we can consistently say yes to it, whatever it is. For those of us who wear a wedding ring, there was a day when we said yes to our spouse, and the value of that relationship is seen in every day since my wedding day, I say no to others in order to continue to say yes to them. So if we consider something to be cheap, it's easily trashed. So you walk out of here, you go over under the covering, and you get a cup of coffee in a styrofoam cup. When you're done drinking it, what do you do with that? Into the trash it goes. It's not very valuable to us. So if it's not important, it doesn't get or keep our attention. If it's not valued, we won't sacrifice for it. With that in mind, open your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to, this morning, we're going to nose around in verse 11 to verse 15. And as we turn to 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament, I mean, let's start with some background. The background is absolutely essential to understand before we start looking at a lot of the details. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we need to understand that from a human perspective, this very moment was or is at least very close to the pinnacle of Israel's Old Testament monarchy. David has died and he has passed the crown on to his own son Solomon. And if there was any wondering at that time about how this succession plan was going to work, everybody's mind was very quickly put at ease. Because national prosperity and success are the order of the day. Good news dominates the newspapers every single morning. In his first 20 years as king, which is where we are now in 2 Chronicles 7, Solomon's leadership has, has produced a climate where things just keep getting better and better. There's peace. Building projects are strengthening the country's infrastructure. There's a general high level of spiritual commitment by people. People are seeing dramatic signs of God's approval. By the way, just go back to chapter 7, verse 1 and verse 2, and you'll see some of them. I mean, it was a great time to be a Jew in Israel at this time. There was solidarity, there was a unifying focus, there was growth, there was accomplishment. Great time to be alive. And the climax of this era was the dedication of the new temple. If the History Channel had been invented back then, the show Modern Marvels would have done at least a couple of episodes about the temple. It was that grandiose and that awe-inspiring. And so to keep in step with its wonder, Solomon organized a week-long extravagant celebration. And we're given a summary statement of all of this in chapter 7, starting at verse... 11. So thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house 
and all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Wow, there is really good momentum here. God has heard Solomon's lengthy prayer. Look at verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So this temple has God's approval as the focus of worship for him. But there's more that God wants to say. So let's continue. Look at verse 13. God says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Notice the dramatic shift between verse 12 and verse 13 or verse 11 and 12 and verse 13. From all outward indications, things are good. And now suddenly God starts describing how his hand is going to bring drought and crop failure and death. I mean, what is with that? God is preparing his people for those times when it's going good and abruptly things go bad. When calm quickly turns to chaos. When there is an unexpected collapse of what we thought was just incredibly stable. Now look at verse 13 because it's important to make some very key observations here. Easy to misunderstand this passage. Let's observe something that's very important. First of all, notice verse 13 begins with the word when, not if. God says there will be times when what he shuts up, what he commands, what he sends is going to be difficult to endure. And it may look like God has lost control or that God has abandoned his people when in fact he is right in the middle of what we think is a complete mess. Now look at the specific things God describes when it's going good and abruptly things go bad. First of all, he says, no rain. That's living with a a deficit. It's the normal expected cause-effect relationship is not working. So in their day, in our day, when the expected seasonal rains don't come, when our investments do not get a return, when our hard work isn't rewarded, when we anticipate God's blessing, but it looks like we have been cursed by him, no rain. There's a deficit. Secondly, God mentions that there's going to be times when the locusts devour. That's living with barrenness. An accident has severely damaged our assets. So a swing in the economy shreds our savings, our retirement funds. That other guy ran the red light, T-boned me, and because of the wreck, I'm out of work for quite an extended period of time. Barrenness. Or third, look at it. Pestilence that kills. That's living with grief. In other words, an unexpected death has occurred. How many of us know of people, they went into the hospital on Friday. By Sunday, they were gone. 
or because of a difference of opinion or a misunderstanding, that relationship that we enjoyed abruptly died on us. Now again, remember the context. Remember the context here in chapter 7. These people were in a deeply satisfying time of solidarity, of focus together, of growth, of accomplishment, and God warns them how quickly it can fade. Life will bring sudden reversals. Life can abruptly become hard. It can abruptly become harsh. And we're left just getting through, just trying to survive for another day. In fact, Moses warned Israel that there would be times like this. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 67, he says, In the morning you shall say, Oh, if only or evening. And at evening you will say, Oh, if only or morning. Because of the dread your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. So how are we to respond? How are we to respond when it's going good and suddenly abruptly things go bad? Do we cringe in a fetal position and plead for God, don't hit me again? Do we shake an angry fist at heaven because you're not being fair to me? Or do we just put our head down and just try to trudge on through in despondent resignation, believing, well, God's going to do whatever God's going to do? How are we to respond? We are to keep reading. Let's now pull in verse 14 and verse 15 and let it inject into our souls hope. Verse 14. So if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears will be attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Did you notice that in verse 14 there is an if-then construction? God lays out our response and then promises His response. So let's follow that through. What is to be my response when it's going good and abruptly things go bad? Well, verse 14 starts out and says we're to humble ourselves. We're to humble ourselves. Well, what does that mean? Well, that word literally means to yield, to to submit. In other words, the emphasis here is on the submission of a proud or arrogant or self-sufficient or independent spirit. Now, let's correct some skewed thinking about, about humility, because being humble is not denying the gifts or abilities that I have been given. Being humble is not characterizing myself as a despised worm. That's not humility. Rather, humility is rejecting a self-centered, self-sufficient lifestyle. It's surrendering my agenda. It's releasing my arrogance that I insist I've got to be in control. Lucy and I have got some dear friends back in Colorado, Dennis and Linda, and they told us one day about uh, the story about the first day of their honeymoon after they got married. Uh, They were married in Dayton, Ohio, and on the morning after their wedding, they were going to be driving to Florida, so they were in downtown Dayton. They were trying to get out to the interstate so they could head towards Florida on on, um, 75. Linda was driving, 
And as Dennis tells the story, not Linda, this is Dennis's start of the story, she was not going to make a turn that would take them to get on the interstate in the shortest way. So he reached over to grab the steering wheel. They just about got a divorce on the first day of their wedding. Linda looked at him and yelled, When I'm driving, don't you dare touch the wheel. Ooh. Do you know how many times the Bible tells a story after story after story of God asking both men and women to take their hands off the steering wheel and trust Him to drive? He's constantly in the Scriptures saying, Watch what I can do. Watch where I can take you if I've got the steering wheel. The problem is that we want our hands on the steering wheel. Has anybody here ever been mystified driving down the road and seeing the bumper sticker, God's my co-pilot? Do you really think God wants to be our co-pilot? See, we're convinced we know what's best. We're convinced that I know what's best for my children. I know what is best for the use of my gifts in ministry to others. I know what's best in the pursuit of my career. I know what is best in my marriage. I know what is best in being single. But when it's going good and abruptly things go bad, we're invited to an immediate response of humility. Even if we don't understand what just happened or why it happened, we trust our Heavenly Father that His hands have got it. And we can relinquish our need to exert control. Now, to give us practical help in what humbling looks like, we're given three expressions of humility. First, verse 14 describes three humble acts. And by the way, they all link together. So the first leads then to the second, which then leads then to the third. Notice, the first humble act is, first of all, to do what? Pray. Nothing very sophisticated about that. Just talk to your Heavenly Father. Ask Him for what you need. Intercede on behalf of other people. When it's going good and things abruptly go bad, that is a huge red flag that immediately it should drive us to prayer. So go ahead and express your puzzling questions. Why this, Lord? Why, Why now? Why me? Be honest to him about how much it hurts. He can handle it. Talk to him about your pain level. Let him know your struggles. Let him know the temptations that you're now facing because of the way things have gone. Talk to him about the steering wheel and whose hands are on it. And that first humble act then immediately spills over into the second and seek my face. In other words, you're going after an intentional, an intensely, intensely personal conversation with another. See, seek my face reminds us that prayer is not working a formula as if I say A and then I say B, I will get C. Wrong. 
Prayer is also not about invoking a magical spell where if I use the right vocabulary, then power will be unleashed. Wrong. It's pursuing a face-to-face relationship. In your marriages or in your friendships, when you talk to somebody else, don't you want to have them look at you? You want to be face-to-face with them because if you can see their face, more than likely you know if you've got their attention. Oh, that's why I love Psalm 27.8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. See that, that sense of drawing near? It's a personal relationship, an intense one that we should want that's part of prayer. So in humility, when I pray, seeking to have that intensely personal conversation with the God of heaven, the third humble act can now occur, which is what? Turning from wicked ways. I recognize I am under divine accountability. See, if I'm praying to my Father in heaven, seeking this intensely personal conversation, then I'll be reminded, who am I speaking to? He's God and I'm not. He's sovereignly in control. I am not. His kingdom-building story is the story with capital T and capital S. And my little one, my little story, kind of needs to fit into his. And that intensely personal conversation quickly begins to reveal my pride, my self-centeredness, my lack of love for others, my desire to be served instead of to serve others. And I become appalled at how much I am not really loving my God wholeheartedly and how I am projecting an image to others, but there is a secret life I have that I don't reveal to anybody else. Because I'm then brought in that conversation to face my addictions, my idols, my failures, my rebelliousness, and it's time to repent, turn, from my wicked ways. Interesting how Gordon MacDonald once talked about how repentance is basically not a religious word. It comes from a culture, he says, where people were essentially nomadic and they lived in a world with no street signs and no maps. And so it's easy to get lost walking across the desert and you become aware that suddenly the countryside is, is strange. And you finally say to yourself, you know, I'm going in the wrong direction. And that's the first act of repentance. The second act of repentance is then to go in an alternate direction. Admission. Direction. So to humble ourselves is not really mental gymnastics. It's accomplished within a relationship with our God where we talk to Him, seeking this intensely personal conversational and engagement that then leads us to repentance because we're reminded who He is and who I really am before Him. Now, remember what I mentioned about verse 14, the if-then construction of the verse? Okay, we've looked at our response when things are going good and abruptly they go bad. Now let's come to God's promised response, the then side of this verse. 
Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Notice how each of his responses correspond to our three humble acts. He first promises, if we will pray, to do what? I'll hear. To hear is to respond, and God will act on our behalf. When we pray, our God says, I am, I am, I'm listening to you. Our words are not falling on deaf ears here. Isaiah chapter 64, starting at verse 4. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for Him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. I will hear when you pray. Second, when we seek his face, notice God promises to forgive. The guilt, the shame, the self-hatred will be removed. Oh, what an advantage we have, church, being on this side of the cross. The penalty for our sin was paid for by the costly sacrifice of God's own Son being crucified in our place which means that all of our sins, both past and present and future, are completely paid for. So that deep, deep forgiveness is the real experience of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's real. By the way, notice there's one more, though, divine response. When we repent turning from our wicked ways, which is our third humble response. He says, then I will heal. Our wounds will be cared for. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. What does he say? I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. By the way, We're given one other promise. Look at verse 15. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. What prayer? The prayer of verse 14. When it's going good and things abruptly go bad and God's people respond with a humility which expresses itself in a prayer that seeks God's face and turns from wicked ways, the eyes of God see that kind of prayer and he will attentively hear it. And my friends, that's why we are encouraging you to seriously consider being a part of these 21 days of prayer. Because how many of us could say, yes, you know, in these last nine months around here, I have seen a deficit, I have seen a barrenness, I have felt grief. So will we respond in humility? So let me explain a couple of details about 
our 21 days of prayer. First of all, I mean, I've even had some of you ask already, why 21 days? Why, why this length? Turn from Second Chronicles, if you would, to into the prophets of the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 10. Let me tell you where I got this from. Daniel chapter 10, starting at verse 12. Daniel's having a conversation with an angel that has been sent to him from heaven. And the angel says to me, meaning to Daniel, Daniel 10, 12, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself, see the connection here, humbled yourself before God, your words, your prayers have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Now the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes of heaven, came to help me. Notice, in Daniel's prayer, there was a heavenly battle. There was spiritual warfare going on. There was a 21-day delay to Daniel's prayer because of satanic opposition. Daniel kept praying, but the answer had already been given 21 days earlier. So we keep praying, even if it means up to 21 days. And so it's going to cost us, each one of us, something to do this. But remember where we started? It will reveal what then we value. Now in our 21 days of prayer, there are going to be three stages to it. Each week is going to have a different focus. So the first week of focus is going to come right out of Second Chronicles chapter 7, and that is there's going to be a focus on personal and corporate confession of sin and repentance. Our God is holy. And he will not and cannot bless when there is unrepented sin. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Rick. I didn't do anything. It wasn't about my choices. I have just been a spectator. Okay, true. But what does Nehemiah chapter 1 tell us? Nehemiah chapter 1, starting at verse 6. Nehemiah is praying and he says, Oh God, let your ear be attended, attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. He repeats the same kind of focus in, in chapter 9, and Daniel does it even in Daniel chapter 9, that even though they personally were not there, they personally were not the ones that sinned, they identified themselves with it as part of the corporate whole. So we need to pray about our church corporately. Are there strongholds? In other words, are there patterns of sin that have continued that need to be broken? Personally, how do I need to pray and ask God, how have I responded to the events of the last nine months? Have any of my reaction attitudes, my reactive words, been a sinful expression motivated out of my pain, my grief, my anger, my pride? In other words, at every level, 
We're taking this week, this very first week, to ask the Lord to purify us and make us aware of any sin that needs to be acknowledged and repented of, and we'll turn from our wicked ways. That's the first week. The second week is going to change the focus onto our love, our love relationship with God and each other. I mean, after all, Jesus himself, when asked what's the greatest of the commandments, said in Mark chapter 12, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we'll spend time praying about that. Are we loving him and loving others well? And then the third week, the focus will shift again, and that is what's next for us as a church. We'll be asking God to move in our midst now and prepare us for what he has in mind that's coming. And by the way, can I just recommend, that's all it is, just for you to consider, that if you've never done it before or you have done it before, that you consider during some of this 21 days of prayer to add fasting as a part of it. Just a suggestion. Out at the hub there, there are, there's a brochure there to help you think this through if you've never fasted before or if you've done some of it but would like to kind of take it to a whole new level. There's an edited article by Bill Bright of Crew. if you'd like to even take this further. I think his comments will be incredibly helpful if you want to consider it. And the idea behind fasting is literally just to take whatever time you would normally use to eat, pray instead. And choosing to go without food is a spiritual statement that we want the Lord more than the nourishment that we can get physically. That's all that it is. Not brownie points in heaven. Just a statement. So for those of you who are going to be committing yourselves to pray for this 21 days, I'd like to just give you some practical suggestions. Uh, First of all, as much as possible, try to pray the same time every day. Not in a legalistic way, but if there's an appointment that you've set to be with the Lord, to be praying, you're less likely to just blow by it and forget it on a certain day. Um, Set aside a time every day. Second, give yourself plenty of time, meaning, if at all possible, make sure that this, this prayer time does not end with a standing appointment that you've got to get to, that you've got to be done by a certain time. So allow it to be as long or as short as, at the moment, you and the Holy Spirit just are having that time together with. Um, but try not to rush it. But give yourself plenty of time. Third thing I'd like to suggest is find a quiet place where you can be by yourself with no distractions. In other words, leave your cell phone, your, your iPad, your computer in another room. Someplace where you won't even hear them dinging and beeping and ringing. <laughs> try to remove the distractions. The fourth thing I would suggest is that you journal this 21-day journey. Get a special notebook. Go down to Staples and buy a a special little book. They've got them there. Something where you can just write down the things that the Word of God is showing you. Impressions from God's Spirit that you believe you need to act on. If you're like me, I forget stuff if I don't write it down. Journal it. A fifth thing I would suggest is you consider your physical stance. Consider that during part of your prayer time, you kneel. Consider doing what some of the, what we've seen in the, in the scriptures, people pray by falling on their face. Get literally on your face on the floor. Consider opening up your palms towards heaven as you sit in a chair. In other words, all I'm saying is suggesting is that you consider letting your physical posture 
parallel where you want your heart to be. A sixth thing I would suggest is that in your prayers, just don't always talk. Take time to be silent. Let the Lord, through his word, speak to you. Come with the expectation that God's going to meet you there, and he wants to say something to you. I mean, after all, in John chapter 10, verse 3, 4, and 16, Jesus says, My sheep will hear my voice. In John chapter 16, verse 12 and verse 13, Jesus says of the Spirit speaking to us, he says, Now, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Take time to be quiet before the Lord. Because there will be times when things are going good and abruptly things go bad. And as you look over the landscape of your own life or over the landscape of this church, you may see a deficit, a a barrenness, a grief. Don't get frantic. Don't be afraid. Don't become fatalistic. For heaven's sake, don't grab the steering wheel because if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land Father we are looking forward with expectancy what you are going to do. In each of us individually, because we make up this body of believers. But what you're also going to do corporately in leading us forward. And Lord, we just commit these next 21 days that they really would be a spiritual adventure that changes us and changes us as a church. And so Father, we commit it to you not because we're trying to prove anything, not because we're trying to earn anything, but because you just warmly invite your people to seek your face, and that's really all we're trying to do. Lord, help us to keep our hands off the wheel. Leave it to you, to our sovereign, wonderful, loving God, to take us where he wants us to be. And we commit that to you in your loving and grace-filled name, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. If you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www. Dot ranchobaptistchurch.org That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.